1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am very pleased indeed today to welcome Catherine J. Eden, who is the author, along with H. Luke Schaefer and Timothy J. Nelson, of The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America, new from HarperCollins. Can Excuse speak, Kathy. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, So before we dive in and talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell folks just
0: a little bit about who you are and what it is that brought you and your team to this project. So I'm a professor of sociology and public policy. I've been uh, studying poverty for my entire career. Um, I've been uh, studying America's most disadvantaged people uh, and wrote a book about that in 2015 called Two Dollars a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America, about the rise of virtually cashless poor in America. But then in 2017, a program officer from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation emailed us out of the blue and said, would you be interested in turning your attention from America's poorest people to America's poorest places? And it just fit. You know, we've been sort of, uh, we've been reading all of this research coming out of economics and sociology about how Social scientists had learned that place uh, where you grew up was as consequential to your life chances as your behavior, your choices, your genetics, the quality of medical care you received. Um, So more and more, we were learning that place was consequential. But studying communities has sort of fallen out of favor among social scientists. And we began to wonder, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we looking at places in addition to studying people. So that's what set us set us off on this journey five years ago.
1: Um, so uh, among other things, you all develop what you call an index of deep disadvantage. So can you tell us a little bit about about what that is and then we'll turn our attention to the places that you find most disadvantaged.
0: Great. So we started with big data. And uh, what we wanted to do is, you know, virtually everybody who studies poverty is dissatisfied with mere Mm income-based measures of disadvantage because, you know, what we're really trying to get at is well-being, and income is not a perfect direct measure of well-being. It's indirect. Um, Nonetheless, it correlates pretty closely with hardship. So we wanted to take advantage of the fact that income-based poverty measures do tell us something. But we wanted to go beyond that to include um, cumulative measures of disadvantage, and th- those would be health, because poverty gets under the skin and affects us long after a spell of being poor, especially for poor as kids, and uh, then some sort of uh, structural measure of poverty. And we chose to study uh, the level of intergenerational mobility in the place, the chances that a kid born poor uh, could could reach the middle class in young adulthood. So. We put these measures, poverty, health, and mobility uh, together. We used a machine learning technique called principal components analyses to construct a score, and then we put everything on a map. And uh, for three (laughs) lifetime scholars of urban poverty, we were pretty surprised by what we saw.
1: And and so tell us, what did you see?
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, there are really five five places that really stick out. Um, The first and largest is America's historic cotton belt, really running from the Carolinas all the way through to Arkansas and Louisiana. Just stunning. Uh, About 140 of the 200 most disadvantaged places are in that region alone. Uh, The second is the historic uh, tobacco belt, just above the cotton belt, running up from the Carolinas into Virginia. Uh, The third is central, um, the the bituminous coal region of central Appalachia. So just incredible uh, disadvantage there. Just appalling health, among other things. And then finally, uh, South Texas, which is something we don't really think about very much. It's kind of off the radar for poverty scholars, but actually some of the highest poverty rates in the nation and in some of the counties down in South Texas. Now, I should say a fifth there, a fifth standout is that about 20 native nations end up in that list of uh, the top 100 most disadvantaged places in that nation. They're not really geographically clustered for historic regions. We weren't able to include them uh, in our analysis, but in some ways the land grab uh, that led to the development of all of the other places, um, the um, through t- treaty, conquest, uh, fraud, uh, you know, that, that gave... Uh, Settlers, um, the ability to lay claim to land in these places was really predicated on the exploitation of Native people in the United States. Yeah.
1: Um, so as you made reference to earlier, the the if you look at the the usual explanations for how we try to make sense of poverty, it's uh, generally falls into like one or two buckets, right? It's either the behavioral explanations, right? People are doing things that they shouldn't be doing or not doing the things that they they should be doing, or it's the the more sort of uh, systemic explanations. It's it's historically weak welfare state, lack of generous social support programs, lack of access to health care, et cetera, et cetera. You all offer what's a a very unusual set of explanations for why it is that these particular places are so poor and let me just tick through them quickly and then maybe we can move through each of them Uh, so you highlight segregation the history of extractive industries violence public corruption structural racism and revolt and retribution and what what brings those together in these places is is what you call internal colonies so maybe we can start there what what do you mean by an internal colony and and walk us through how you explain why these places are poor
0: so I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story uh, to explain how we got to this kind of incendiary term um, and that is, as soon as we c- constructed this map, we knew we had to go to these places and we had to embed deeply in these places and began to collect people's narratives, to observe community events, to become to, to the extent possible part of the fabric of these communities. So we embedded uh, along with a team of researchers in one representative community in each of these regions and visited these places time and time again. And uh, then the pandemic hit. And so we had to come home. Uh, but we decided then to take a deep dive into history. And, and the reason we did that is because in our team meetings, you know, the, the people from Clay County, Kentucky would say, did you know? that this tiny little county was once the salt capital of the Northeastern United States, producing more salt than any other region that helped settle the West? (laughs) Or did you know um, that LaFleur County, um, uh, Mississippi, was the place where the cotton kingdom flourished more than any other place in history well after the Civil War? Or did you know that Marion County, Kentucky, was once the uh, the tobacco, you know, the, the the leading producer of the bright leaf tobacco, which popularized cigarette smoking, in the entire region. Uh, did you know, you know, the, the coal industry? And, and these stories just kept coming up. And these little places that we had chosen, all rural communities, had all been the world capital or the nation's capital or the region's capital of something. The other thing we noticed about these places is they had – the, the haves and the have-nots, but no one in between. These were feudal structures, social structures, where you had just a few owners, often very wealthy, living fairly, fairly opulent lives, and many, many sort of landless, uh, of the landless laboring class uh, that lived on um, very, very little. So you'd see mansions and, you know, shacks um, uh, co-mingling on the streets of many of these communities. So uh, when we went deeper into history, we discovered that they had two things in common. And in fact, these commonalities were quite stunning. One was a history of extraction. You know, like if you're a Midwestern farmer, I grew up in a Midwestern farming community, you invest in the soil because you want to keep farming that land and you want your children to perhaps do so as well. Uh, but here it's take the resources and run, you know, in the tobacco belt, people were always moving west uh, gone to Texas, you know. You'd see this on, on abandoned plantations in Georgia where people were moving west for fresh land. So this extraction and these these single commodity economies were sort of these all or nothing economies. It's cotton or nothing. And then the other is the extreme exploitation of people. And in all of these cases, uh, white, black, and Hispanic people did not have basic rights. Did not have more than a remedial education, were stripped of their rights to vote, and had virtually no chance of escaping their class background. So, you know, we would have been, had to be really naive, I think, not to notice that these were exactly the characteristics of of the colonial age across the world.
1: Um, So let's, let's, Tick through some of, of the, the the larger forces you observed, and maybe you can can walk us through. Uh, maybe do a little tracing of causation, as you all understand it for us. Um, so let's talk about uh, 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 segregation. Um, how does that how does that play out, and why, why? What does that have to do with poverty?
0: So what we what we wanted to do in this book is, you know, first of all, we documented that all of these places. Um, were tied to their past in, in a profound way. But then the question is, how? You know, these legacies are being manifest today, but how is that? What are the mechanisms? And so one thing that ca- characterized all of these places is separate and enormously unequal schooling. So, you know, for black and Hispanic kids who were expected to work with their parents in the field, the school year lasted only five months long. Teachers were unprepared. In a lot of cases, there was no 12th grades. So you had to go to a boarding school to even apply to college. Uh, the processes were a little bit different. In um, at Appalachia, they accomplished the same thing through extreme inequality in school funding formulas, really rendering the eastern part of the state with only a fraction a tiny fraction of the resources that were afforded to kids in the western part of the state, so much so that the Kentucky Supreme Court deemed the whole system unconstitutional in 1989. So these have perpetuated today in the counties that are most disadvantaged in the South through segregation academies, many of now, (laughs) who will now receive state funding through uh, programs like the Arkansas Learns Act, um, and 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 also then in in South Texas through Anglo private schools and and white flight, so so whites largely fled to school districts uh, that were whiter. At leaving, you know, in Crystal City, which we write about, the school was 80, 85 percent uh, Hispanic uh, in nineteen sixty nine, when a civil rights action led by the students um, erupted there, and uh, they won. They won, and in 1970, uh, only two percent of the school was Hispanic. So through these mechanisms of segregated education, um, children, uh, children's chances right of reaching the middle class, which is our mobility measure, are are sharply limited. And uh, it really it's really a problem for these places now because you know if you want to set up a business in Greenwood, Mississippi, do you really want to send your kids? to pillow academy the segregation academy that was founded by the founder of the white citizens council probably not so try to figure out where the the, the talk a little i mean
1: I, there were lots of of pieces of this that i found absolutely fascinating but but sort of your your discussion about about the ways that these forces interact and and the effects that this has on the collapse of social Infrastructure of many kinds, and then the ways that the legacy of violence both contributes to that breakdown but also creates new kinds of breakdown. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of formulating no, the question no, there, but <laughs>
0: yeah, jump in. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I think those two stories really do go together. When we reached uh, Clay County, Kentucky, you know, we picked these communities purely on the numbers, we did not hit research their histories. We did not really know anything about them. Uh, we soon learned uh, that, that it was the epicenter of the opioid addiction crisis, this little county and this whole region for for push and pull reasons. But one thing everybody told us, virtually everyone told us, uh, was their diagnosis for why opioids were so bad there. And they said they would say uh, to a person There's nothing to do here but drugs. There's nothing to do here but drugs. And then they began to talk about the fact uh, that as depopulation had began to occur as as coal began to collapse in the 1960s, the bowling alleys had closed. Uh, The local movie theater in town had been turned into a Pentecostal church. Uh, The only park with a playground for kids had been bulldozed to build a new highway. Um, The beauty parlors and the barber salons were closing down. And, and as we begin to look into this more, uh, we learned through government census data that these places had really suffered from a collapse of what uh, the sociologist Eric Kleinenberg calls social infrastructure. So physical infrastructure, roads and bridges, right? Social infrastructure are the institutions where people build social bonds, like the bowling alley. You know, Robert Putnam wrote about how people were bowling less in leagues and how this this uh, lack of uh, membership and voluntary associations threatened democracy. But we weren't seeing just the bowling league falling out of style. The bowling alley had been plowed under. And so uh, you know, we've returned to big data to to test this idea. We turned to other literature, and it it turns out that, that when a place loses these key institutions, uh, all kinds of social problems result, and uh, really leaves people uh, vulnerable uh, to things like like drugs. Uh, and the the violence story is really surprising too. You know, I was raised in, in rural Minnesota, and I never imagined that in doing this project, I would be going to some of the most violent communities in America. But indeed. Uh, LaFleur County, um, uh, Mississippi is as violent as Chicago, <laughs> which I also study. So it, it's very striking this pattern this pattern of, uh, of violence and in fact these are some of the most violent uh, places in, in our entire nation as measured best we can by you know looking at death statistics. those are the most reliable. So we began really exploring the history of violence in these places. And of course, violence was always perpetrated in these places to keep the laboring class down. Anytime somebody crossed the caste color line, threatened the social hierarchy, there would be retribution. Any sign of revolt led to violent reprisals. And so a tradition of violence, a structural cycle of violence uh, began to develop in these communities where violence was perpetrated to depress mobility. But then that depressed mobility would spark violence. When people lose hope, uh, violence occurs. And so then, of course, this lowered mobility and increased violence. Uh, and we have found really good evidence again returning to big data to test these hypotheses developed on the ground that indeed one of the strongest predictors of violence is the rate of social mobility in a place.
1: Talk a little bit if you would about the 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 history and and consequences of political corruption in these places. Oh.
0: So this was another shocker uh, for somebody from the upper Midwest, a, a, a place where <laughs> political corruption is virtually unknown. <laughs> um, every well, one... I don't
1: know. You're awfully close to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true.
0: Um, but yes, well, Illinois yeah. is its own thing. But
1: it really is. One... Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one thing that was very striking is that when we arrived in each of these regions, each was Literally struggling with an aftermath of an unbelievable story of corruption, you know, in in uh, Crystal City, virtually all of the civic leadership of the town had gone to jail for one thing or another, uh, usually for ex- accepting kickbacks in return for government contracts. But you know, the New York Times quipped, "This is the most corrupt little town in America," and this this tradition you know, which we see now among uh, the Hispanic leadership of the town uh, goes all the way back to when Anglos were in charge and, and the Texas Rangers, you know, would, would enforce uh, whatever the, the, um, the haves, uh, the, the interests of the haves and uh, threatened the have-nots. So very long tradition. Uh, the, the most extreme case was perhaps in Clay County, Kentucky where this pattern had gone back to 1820 and the same families who mined salt there and became fabulously wealthy, sent uh, someone to the House of Representatives who paid the speaker, uh, sent someone to the governor's mansion in Kentucky from this little place, is, uh, we're, were still in charge and still incredibly corrupt. So slate after slate of public officials uh, were, were um, indicted, convicted, and then sentenced. To prison. Probably the most well-known of these is the welfare scandal in Mississippi, really originating right in uh, Lafleur County, where uh, the head of the the lead nonprofit who helped steal eighty million dollars uh, from Mississippi's poorest families uh, hails from. And of course, that scandal, the welfare scandal, um, took that money and put it into the pockets of a lot of. Uh, local celebrities like Brett Favre. And it's because of Brett Favre that this has made national news. But, but these stories of corruption were incredible. And, of course, what business is going to locate in a place where you can't have faith in public officials, where graft is rife, and where the, the, the motivations of the elites are not uh, benign, right? And they're not, uh, for the many, uh, but they're really the motivations have always been to find a way to extract resources, uh, for themselves at the expense of their neighbors. So an ex- a surprise, but a very strong theme in, in all of these regions.
1: Um, and of course, to, to go back to, to our earlier conversation, um, this is the way a colonizer behaves, right? (laughs) I mean, this is how we understand what it is to be colonized, that you are there, your resources are extracted, and the colonizer moves on when they are done with you.
0: You know, I've got to tell you probably the most uh, soul-searing story in that regard. Uh, Clay County has run out of coal. There are really no active mines there anymore. Some people still uh, travel to mines um, east east of the county. Uh, but what's keeping the economy afloat today is pain and op- opioids in, in Manchester, the county seat. There are 13 pharmacies in a city of 1800 people. And that's, of course, because um, a pharmacy can only give out so many op- opioids. And at the height of the crisis, there were 285 prescriptions for every 100 men, men, women, and children in the county. That figure still at 130. So in a sense, what's happened there, and there are all these little clinics that have sprung up because that's where you go and get your prescriptions now. The doctors at the hospital won't, won't prescribe you an opioid. <laughs> um, the whole economy has really become organized around uh, mining people for their pain. And uh, the thing that really broke uh, the camel's back in Clay County and and led the populace to revolt against the corrupt elites was that the corrupt elites were actually in bed with the drug dealers, helping to funnel drugs into the town just uh, so, you know, as, as people could no longer get uh, opioids, uh, they went to other other illegal opioids and um, meth and heroin, fentanyl, and uh, this was just a, a conduit into the town that that local elites were were milking in order to, um, in order to to enrich themselves. So the you know the town organized a march and uh, it helped, but but uh, it didn't get rid of the problem.
1: Yeah, and it's, as you point out in the book, um, Purdue Pharma, we now know intentionally targeted particular communities, especially those with large numbers of family physicians who might not say be as sophisticated or might be more willing to write prescriptions if they saw benefits. So again, the the ways in which all kinds of different actors have profited from this
0: immiseration. Yes. Yeah, yes. and really those are the big winners, right? Yeah. Uh, but but it's interesting, it's kind of a reverse racism and And that um, Purdue um, apparently thought it was too dangerous uh, to to try these new drugs out on uh, black or Hispanic people. They wanted rural people because rural people didn't have specialists to go to and they were really dependent on pills for any kind of pain. And so they literally put a target on the back of Eastern Kentucky. And that combined with this collapse of social infrastructure really left them vulnerable. Now, in other places, we see a lot of drug use as well um also um, highly correlated with these with the very very low mobility um, but you don't see the deaths because uh, these areas were not targeted by by um, by Purdue they were you know just regular drugs um, like cocaine and and uh, marijuana so um so you also
1: um look at at the other end of the spectrum places of great advantage um can you tell us a little bit about uh, where are those places and what do
0: they have in common how do they differ this might have been more surprising even than the map of greatest disadvantage um so i always thought of myself as growing up in a poor rural place in minnesota my home county is uh, the 287th most advantaged place in the country, mm-hmm. out of you know th- about 3,500 places that we include in our study. So I have to stop taking credit for any of my own accomplishments. <laughs> but um, you know that leads leads to the conclusion that is that they're in the upper Midwest, overwhelmingly mm-hmm. in the upper Midwest. So uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, the eastern portions of those two states, Nebraska, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Have the greatest number of advantaged counties. Now it's very interesting. There's not a lot of wealth in these places, but there's very little poverty. So there's very little inequality. Corruption is virtually unknown in these places. Far enough from Chicago, Um, you know the kids. Other than the few kids who go to parochial schools, kids share uh, classrooms. Rates of violence are very, very low. Uh, so all of the mechanisms that work to keep the places that are most disadvantaged down are operating uh, to lift people up. Babies are born healthy. Uh, old folk live to a ripe old age. Uh, and a kid born in these counties has, who, who was raised in poverty has just as much chance as any other kid of making it to the middle class. So uh, people really seem to thrive in places where inequality is low and um, that are free from, from segregation, violence, corruption, and so on.
1: Uh, so in some ways, your description of the, the more advantaged places answers this question. But let's, let's conclude by uh, asking you what it is that you think we can and should do to these places of great disadvantage uh, to start to undo some of uh, the harm that has been thrust upon these communities.
0: So when these mono economies begin to collapse in the 1960s, there was an effort in almost every case to build a manufacturing economy, a more diverse economy where there were more opportunities and to really break this extractive cycle. But over and over again, we heard about the impact of NAFTA and the China boom, foreign competition just wiping out manufacturing concern. Manufacturing concern: Russell Stover, the Blue Jean Factory, Baldwin Piano. Um, all of these uh, nascent, new forms, new economic forms that were emerging in these places were just crushed uh, by American trade policy. So, you know, backing backing that up, um, you know, Bidenomics I think is a good start. Uh, it, it, if we want to see these places thrive, we have to give them a chance. And they were really, um, you know, wh- whereas the nation as a whole might, uh, at least some argue, have benefited from NAFTA and um, competition from China, uh, other places have lost big. And I think we need to, to face up to that and, and give these places a fair shot. But uh, they're going to have to improve their wage structures so people can actually rise above the poverty line uh, with a full-time job, which is currently not happening in these places. They need to fix up their schools, um, you know, and kids need to go to be in the same classrooms. They've, they've got to deal with their corruption problems, uh, electing new leaders who are not part of this old elite establishment. Um, and they, ha- they have to give everybody a fair shake at making it to the middle class. So uh, I, think, I think there's a real onus on these communities to, uh, to give up these resource hoarding behaviors that they've so long relied on, and many local leaders, frankly, are are ready are ready to move. Uh, many of the new leaders, by the way, are um, uh, are black and Hispanic. Um, you know, the actually the class the class division in in um, Eastern Kentucky is actually more rigid in some ways uh, than the racial divide in, in the other regions, but. Many of the most exciting leaders in this place is now are, are, are black and Hispanic people who've gone away, gotten higher education, become uh, credentialed and experienced and they're coming back to give back and invest in the places where they grew up. So um, I, I think there's real potential to nurture this, this new leadership class and, to, um, and to, to really have a reckoning about what it would take Um, Not only does uh, I think the federal government have to change its its attitude toward trade, but these these places have to say, well, (laughs) if we're going to thrive, we also need to give up these resource hoarding patterns we've been so attached to.
1: You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Catherine J. Eden, who is the author, along with H. Luke Schaefer and Timothy J. Nelson, of a really extraordinary new book called The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America, from HarperCollins. Uh, Kathy, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure.
0: It was a pleasure for me, too.